Thank you for reading our scripture tonight. We're going to be looking at Isaiah 2, 2 and 3, the passage read a moment ago. We're going to be talking about the Lord's house, the church. I want us for a couple of weeks or so, more than a couple of weeks, to talk about some of the fundamentals of the faith and to remind us of what we believe and why we believe it. Peter, of course, taught in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, that we are to sanctify the Lord God in our heart and that we are to be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks us of the hope that is in us with meekness and fear. And so tonight I would ask you the question, what do you believe? What do you believe about the church? And why do you believe it? Because somebody said it? Because that's what's been passed down generation to generation to you? Or is it because you have become convinced that what you read in Scripture is truth? In our effort to try to reach people in the community and where we work, attend school, etc., there are a lot of questions that come up, and sometimes there will be questions that will be asked us about the church. And there are a lot of questions that people have about the church, particularly when we talk about the church of Christ. So what I want us to do tonight is look at Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, and look at what I believe to be some fundamental, foundational truths regarding the church. And there's some things that are in Isaiah chapter 2 that will help us explain to our friends and family members what the Bible has to say about the church. Now, if you have the outline tonight, I would encourage you to just fold it up and put it back in your Bible. We're going to look at, we're going to talk about some of the things in the outline, but I want to look at this lesson a little bit differently than what is in the outline. And I want to begin by, first of all, talking about the period when the Lord's house would be established. And this, of course, is from Isaiah's perspective. Now, Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 9 through 11, that the church today exists because it is a part of God's eternal purpose. God, as you well know, had a plan in place before he ever created man to redeem him, recognizing that given the ability, the opportunity to make choices in life, man would ultimately make the wrong choices in life, thereby sinning and thus standing in need of divine redemption. And so just as Jesus was a part of God's eternal plan in the redemption process, the church is also a part of that plan. And so Isaiah, writing some 750 years before Jesus ever came to earth, in a very specific and graphic way, talked about the establishment of the Lord's house. So I want to begin by, first of all, talking about the period when the Lord's house would be established. In verse 2, here's what Isaiah said. Now it shall, it shall come to pass in the last days or in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills. What about the last days or the latter days? 
what is it that, what time period is Isaiah pointing toward? I want us to look at the New Testament in just a minute, but I want to call attention to the book of Daniel very quickly. Because I think in order for us to appreciate the period when the Lord's house would be established, we need to look at what Daniel has to say in chapter 2. Daniel, of course, had been deported to Babylon along with three of his friends. Daniel was about 17 years of age, and he had the opportunity to rise to prominence in the court of King Nebuchadnezzar. In Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, didn't understand the dream, and so he needed somebody to interpret that dream. And Daniel said in verse 28, There is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Now, what about this dream, this vision that Nebuchadnezzar had centuries ago? Drop down and look, if you would, at verse 31. In verse 31, Isaiah writes, or rather, Isaiah, rather Daniel says, You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image. He said, This great image whose splendor was excellent, stood before you. And he said its form was awesome. Now, in this great image, he's going to depict four world empires. Each one of these empires, through the providence of God, would lend to the establishment of the church. In other words, they would all make viable contributions to the church that would come into existence in the first century in the latter days or the last days. So he said, the image's head was of fine gold. Now, he's talking here about Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar, of course, was the head. He was the king of Babylon. And he said, its chest and arms of silver. We think about the Medo-Persian Empire, which followed the kingdom of Babylon. And Cyrus was the king of the Medes and the Persians allowing God's people to return to their homeland after they had gone to Babylon for 70 years and instructed them to go back and to rebuild the temple. And then he said, it's belly and thighs of bronze. And now we think about the Grecian Empire. He said, it's legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay, the Roman Empire. He said, you watched while a stone was cut without hands. Now, the stone cut without hands is different from these world empires that Daniel is talking about here. The reference here has to do with the church, this exalted mountain that Isaiah had foretold of. And so he writes, Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. That's the same mountain Isaiah is talking about. Isaiah saw the church as an exalted institution into which all nations would flow. Daniel, in his interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, talks about these four world empires that would rise and fall in successive order beginning, of course, with Babylon. And he said, Babylon's going to give way to the Medes and the Persians, which later will give way 
to the Grecian Empire, and then to the Roman Empire. Now, I said that each of these kingdoms would make contributions ultimately to the church, the kingdom that would be established on Pentecost Day. For example, Babylon contributed by way of the Jewish synagogues because they had been deported to Babylon, that is, the people of God. And this afforded Paul and the other apostles, Jesus, etc., opportunities, houses to teach in. The Medes and the Persians, they contributed principles of law and order. You remember a statement was made in the book of Daniel that the Medes and the Persians, their law was not to be altered. The Grecian Empire contributed by way of a universal language. And then what about the Roman Empire? Some have said that all roads would ultimately lead to Rome. They also contributed by way of communication and standards of Roman citizenship. These are contributions that God, through His providence, could use ultimately to the good of the church. Now, having said that, drop down and look at verse 44. Daniel has interpreted this dream and he's talking to Nebuchadnezzar. He foresees these four world empires, beginning, with, beginning again with Babylon, down through the Medes, the Persians, the Grecians, and then the Roman Empire. And so in verse 44, here's what he says, And in the days of these kings, what kings? The Roman kings. He said, The God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. The kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. And he said, It shall stand forever. Now Daniel here is talking about the kingdom of God of the church as we know it. Isaiah has foreseen the church as an exalted institution, an exalted mountain into which all nations would flow. Go back and look at the Babylonian Empire. What happened to it? It fell, didn't it? What about the Grecian Empire saying? Well, what about the Roman Empire? Again, kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall, nations rise and they fall. The kingdom of God, according to Daniel, it's going to stand forever. Interestingly, when John the Baptist began his earthly ministry, do you remember what he preached? In Matthew chapter 3, the Bible says that John the Baptist began his earthly ministry preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, why? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the same kingdom that Daniel talked about hundreds of years earlier. The very same institution that Isaiah talked about in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. Then Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. When he began his earthly ministry, he echoed the sentiments of John the Baptist. He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So what about the period when the Lord's house would be established? Well, Isaiah said it would come to pass in the latter days, the last days. The mountain of the Lord's house would be established. So we said, according to what Daniel has written, this would occur during the days of the Roman kings. Now, the last days or the latter days simply points to the last or the final dispensation of time. That is, the Christian age. Do you remember in Hebrews chapter 1, 
When the Hebrew writer said, God who at various times in different ways spoke in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. In Acts chapter 2, when Peter preached the first gospel sermon, and we have a record of it, you remember the people on that occasion, they thought the apostles were drunk with new wine. And Peter said, look, they're not drunk with new wine as you suppose. He said, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, the God of heaven would pour out his spirit upon all flesh. And so, the last days, the latter days, are simply the last dispensation of time. We call it the Christian dispensation. Now, first, the period when the Lord's house would be established. Secondly, the place. Now, somebody might ask you, when did the Lord's house come into being? When did the church come into existence? Well, you can say it came into existence during the days of the Roman kings in the first century on Pentecost Day. Well, how do I know that? Because that's what the Bible says, doesn't it? Look, if you would, at Acts chapter 2. Well, look, if you would, at Isaiah chapter 2. I'm sorry. In Isaiah 2, in verse 3, Isaiah said, Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. Now listen to him. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. The church began during the days of the Roman kingdom, in the latter days. The church began also where? In the city of Jerusalem. A couple of things here. Any church that began prior to Pentecost Day would not be the New Testament church. Any church that claims to have originated after Pentecost Day is not the New Testament church. Furthermore, any church that began outside the city of Jerusalem can't be the New Testament church. How do I know that? Because Isaiah said, the word of the Lord would go forth from Jerusalem. You remember in Luke chapter 24, Jesus, of course, has already been put to death. And he's also been raised from the dead. He is about to ascend to heaven. And he talked about how all of the prophecies that had been penned about him had ultimately been fulfilled. And in giving the Great Commission, he said that repentance and remission of sins would be preached in his name beginning where? At Jerusalem. He instructed the apostles in Luke chapter 24 to tarry in Jerusalem until they be endued with power from on high. In other words, they were going to receive a baptismal measure of the Holy Spirit, which they did, in fact, receive. Now, in Acts chapter 1, Jesus said to the apostles, You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. He said the Holy Spirit would be poured out upon them. 
and they would be witnesses of him. Jesus here saying that New Testament Christianity as we know it would begin where? In the city of Jerusalem. Well, when would that be? In the days of the Roman kings in the first century, in about A.D. 32 or 33. So we talk about the place where the Lord's house would be established. The first gospel sermon to ever be preached was preached in Jerusalem on Pentecost Day. And there were multitudes of people present on that occasion. And for the first time, they had the opportunity to hear the gospel. And Peter shared with them the fact that they had put to death the Son of God. And they were all mindful of the Son of God. They knew exactly who Jesus was. He pointed out to them that they had put him to death. Now, I want you to see something else in Isaiah chapter 2. This has to do with the person by whom the Lord's house would be established. Look again at verses 2 and 3. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He'll teach us his ways. We shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Some key points here. When people ask us about the church, and they ask us when the church began, we can say it began in the first century, Pentecost Day. When they ask us where did it begin, we can say in the city of Jerusalem. When they ask us, well, by whom did the, by whom did the church begin? Who established it? Who's responsible for it? Let me suggest to you, first and foremost, that Jesus Christ built the church of the kingdom. Now, there are a lot of folks that have difficulty understanding that Jesus is the one who built the church. In Matthew chapter 16, you remember in Matthew 16, look at Matthew 16 for just a moment with me. In Matthew the 16th chapter, Jesus, of course, is in Caesarea Philippi. And he asked the disciples on this occasion, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say you're John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. It's easy to understand how somebody could have associated Jesus with any one of those characters. But here's what Jesus then asked, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, that is, you're the anointed one, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now listen. And I also say to you, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Jesus here makes a promise, doesn't he? The Lord said, I'm going to build my church. Now, whose church is it? It's not my church. 
It's not any one person's church. Sometimes people say, well, my church says this or my church says that. The church belongs to the Lord Jesus, doesn't it? Jesus said, I will build my church. So the church, by way of possession, belongs to the Lord. And it's also singular in nature, isn't it? Listen again. Jesus said, I will build my church. Did he build his church? In Acts chapter 2, when Peter preached the first gospel sermon, the Bible says they were cut to the heart. Peter had said to them, Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this same Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and God. So they want to know, what do we need to do? And the Bible says, Peter said to them, Repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins. They were instructed to repent, be baptized, so that they might enjoy forgiveness. Now, in verse 39, Peter said, For the promises to you, to your children, and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Now, look at Isaiah chapter 2 very quickly in connection with this. In Isaiah 2, in the latter part of verse 2, Isaiah said, All nations shall flow to it. He said, Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the, of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. The church would be comprised of both Jews and Gentiles, wouldn't it? Initially, the gospel went to the Jews, went to the Jewish people. In Acts chapter 8, the gospel goes beyond the Jewish people to the Samaritans. Now, Jesus had said in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 that they, that is the apostles, would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and then the end of the earth. So in Acts chapter 8, we read about well, the Bible tells us that Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to those people. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul said that Jesus reconciled both Jew and Gentile in one body unto God through the cross. Well, what's the one body? It's the church. It is the mountain of the Lord's house, comprised of all people. In Galatians chapter 3, when Paul talked about the fact that those who are baptized into Christ are on the same, they're all on equal ground. He said there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither bond nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ. And if you're Christ, then you're Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Well, how'd that come about? Because Jesus went to the cross, died on the cross, reconciling both Jew and Gentile in the one body unto God. So when we're baptized into Christ, we're all a part of the same body, aren't we? So Jesus built the church. Second thing, not only did he build it, but the Bible says he bought it. Look, if you would, at Acts chapter 20, verse 28. When we think about the importance of the church, and there are a lot of people that sadly do not understand the divine nature of the church. And some have the idea that the church is a take-or-leave proposition. Some have failed to count the cost when it comes to the church. In Acts 20, verse 28, listen to what Paul said to the Ephesian elders. Therefore, take heed to yourselves, to all the flock, 
among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd, to feed the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. The church was bought with the blood of Jesus. Now you think about that. Jesus promised to build the church. He bought and paid for it with divine blood, didn't he? So if he bought and paid for it with divine blood, how important is that institution? How important is the church? There are some people that will casually wave off the church and talk like it's not an important entity. It's not that important. We don't really have to worry about being a member of the church. You ever thought about how many lives have been sacrificed for the preservation of freedom in this country? It may be the case that you have a family member that laid down his or her life for the freedom we enjoy in this country. That's personal, isn't it? When you think about somebody that shed their blood for the freedom of this nation, it's one thing to talk about somebody else's brother, somebody else's father, somebody else's son or daughter, but when it's your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your son, your daughter, then that's personal. That's very personal. The church cost Jesus his blood. It exists today by divine right. God in heaven decreed that the church would be established. And Jesus built the church and bought it with his blood. In Ephesians 5.25, Paul said, Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church. And then he said, and gave himself up for it. Jesus gave himself for the church, didn't he? So I want to ask you, how important is the church? When we talk about the freedom that we enjoy in this nation, if you lost a family member, member for the preservation of this country, then it's important to you. When you look at God in heaven and you think about God in heaven gave his son for our redemption and for the purchasing of the church of which we are members, it ought to say to us, it is extremely important. Now, I want you to see something else. Not only did Jesus build the church and buy the church, but it belongs to him. Now I want you to just think about this for a minute. If you built something and you bought it with your own hard-earned money, then wouldn't you say that belongs to you? The church belongs to the Lord, doesn't it? So if it belongs to him, doesn't that suggest that he has the right to regulate it? to tell the church how to operate. I want you to go back with me for a minute and look at a passage I've called attention to before, but I want you to see it again because I think it's very important that we see the connection. In the book of Exodus in chapter 13, I want you to listen to what God said to Moses. He said, Sanctify to me all the firstborn, he said, whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, 
whether man or beast. Now I want you to listen to him. It is mine. What was God saying? God was saying that he was laying claim to the firstborn. In effect, what he was saying is, it is mine. It belongs to me. The word sanctify means to set it apart. So, having looked at this Old Testament verse, think about the New Testament correlation to what is said here. Look over in Hebrews chapter 12 now. Look at Hebrews, the 12th chapter. In Hebrews chapter 12, in verse 23, the Hebrew writer said, To the general assembly and church of the firstborn. Well, who are the firstborn? You remember in Exodus chapter 13, 1 and 2? God said, I want you to sanctify, to set apart the firstborn. Whatever opens the womb, whether male, whether man or beast, he said, it's mine, it belongs to me. So the Hebrew writer here is writing to the general assembly and church of the firstborn. That is, he's writing to people who belong to God. He's talking about people who belong to God. He said, who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect. So as a member of the church, we belong to God. We belong to Him lock, stock, and barrel. If we are a part of the church, then what, we're, what we have said in effect is our allegiance is to the Lord. He is our ruler, our master. He is the one who reigns over us. Now I want you to maybe just think about this for a minute. Since the church belongs to Jesus and we are a part of the church, then he has the right to tell us what to do, doesn't he? He has the right to determine the terms of admission into the church. Who am I to tell people what to do to be a member of the church outside what the Lord has authorized? On Pentecost Day, when they cried out and said, Men and brethren, what shall we do? What did Peter say? He said, I want you to repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins. How does that harmonize with what you hear today on television or the radio? Typically, what do you hear? What I typically hear is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Or, repeat after me this simple prayer, Accept the Lord Jesus into your heart and you will be saved. In the first century on Pentecost Day, when Peter set forth the terms of admission into the church of the kingdom of God, wouldn't that have been a golden opportunity for him to have said, now look, here's what you need to do. Recite this prayer and you'll be one of my children. But he didn't do that, did he? Well, why? Because Peter is speaking by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And God said, here are the terms of admission into the kingdom. So those who complied with the will of God, as a matter of fact, Luke tells us some 3,000 people obeyed the gospel on that day. 
Acts 2.47 says, And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. The church, the church belongs to the Lord. The church is comprised of the redeemed, the cleansed, those who have been baptized into Christ so that they might enjoy the forgiveness of sins and they become a part of this exalted institution that Isaiah talked about centuries ago. Why is it so important to be a part of this church? Because Jesus is the Savior of the body. Ephesians 5.23 The only way for people to go to heaven in this day and time is to be a member of the church. To be a part of the bride of Christ. To be in Christ. I said a moment ago, Jesus built the church. He bought the church. It belongs to Him. If the church belongs to Jesus, then that means I belong to the Lord. And that means whatever Jesus tells me to do, then I'm duty-bound to honor it, aren't I? One of the real problems in the church is that we have a lot of folks that have obeyed the gospel but they have never relinquished control of their lives to the Lord. They've never allowed the Lord to take over and to be the ruler, to be the one who is, as we would say, calling the shots. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, Paul said, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you, which you have from God? Now listen to him. He said, You are not your own. You were bought with a price. All he's saying is, look, you belong to God. You don't have the right to get out here and do as you please and just be the captain of your own ship. He's saying you belong to God. Therefore, you are to glorify God in your body and in your spirit. Why? Because it belongs to God. The church is an exalted institution. We exalt the Lord in our lives by how we live, that is, by our works and by our worship. God is glorified in the church. That's what Paul said in Ephesians 3, verse 21. When I engage in, quote, unquote, the work of the church, and there are a lot of different ways that you can serve the Lord, and there are opportunities for every person in the body of Christ to be a part of the work. But I want you to hear me very quickly. If the church is going to be what it ought to be in the eyes of God, then every single member has to contribute. Think about your body. Your body is comprised of multiple parts. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul uses the analogy of the human body to the body of Christ. If every member in your body is not carrying its load, what happens? You've got a problem. When I was a teenager, I used to cut grass. That's how I made money. And there was a guy that lived up the street from me, and I cut his yard for years. And he was relatively young at the time. He was in his early 50s. He had been an executive with one of the food companies in our, in, in our city. And he was a workaholic. And so at the age of about 51 or 52, he had a massive stroke. And it paralyzed the left side of his body. 
And so here's a guy, I thought he was ancient at the time. Let me tell you what, he was a young man. But he had a massive stroke. And for the rest of his life, he only had the use of the right side of his body. He was, as we would say, disabled. Now imagine going through life with an arm and a leg that won't work anymore. If we're not, if we're not bearing our load in the church, then we disable the church. We become a disabled body, don't we? Not everyone is a self-starter. But there are any number of things that all of us can do to advance the cause of Christ. What I'm trying to get you to see is this. Look, we belong to God. And everything that we do in the name of Christ, we do to bring honor and glory to God. That's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. So, the work that we're doing in this community and in other places, it's done not to draw attention to us, but to draw attention to the Lord. And it is this exalted institution that we are a part of and that affords us the opportunity to work and to do what we can to advance His cause. When it becomes a labor of love, then that's when the church, in my estimation, reaches its zenith. When every single one of us look at the work of the church as something that we relish doing, then look, we've, we've made a lot of progress. So we glorify God in our work and in our worship. I need to quit now. Our time's gone, really past time. But I want, you to, I want you to realize how special it is to be a part of this exalted institution. God created three institutions, the home, the civil government, and the church. If you are a member of the church, you are blessed beyond measure because you are a part of the blood-bought body of Jesus Christ. And one day when the Lord comes, He's going to lay claim to you. Remember what Paul said in 1 Timothy, or 2 Timothy chapter 2? The Lord knows those who are His. He knows you. And one day He'll come to claim you. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, I want to encourage you to come to Christ, to do what they did on Pentecost Day. Be baptized into Christ so that all your sins can be washed away. And then be faithful. And if you'll do that, one day God will bestow on you the crown of life. If you're here tonight and maybe you're not faithful to the cause, maybe you're not what you ought to be, could we pray with you and for you? Recognizing that God will abundantly pardon, 1 John 1, 9, as we stand and sing.